Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom, and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits at elevatepod.com. In this guide created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at elevatepod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with Dave Evans today. Today, you're going to learn about the designer mindset. You're also going to learn about really designing your life and what that means and how to reframe, reposition, re-enlist, remodel, relocate, and reinvent to move forward. You're going to learn how to apply the designer mindset, whether it's designing a prototype of a product, uh, a technology solution, uh, a service, and applying that towards the design, design of your business, the design of your work, and the design of your life. Today's episode is super valuable. I'm so excited about this. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. Of course, today is no different. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I am a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And if it's your first time listening to Elevate, thank you so much for being here. We're so thankful to have the opportunity to pour massive value into your cup today. Welcome. And uh, also, if it's if you've been here before, welcome back. We're so thankful to have the opportunity to share value with you. Want to encourage you to pay the fee. The fee is just to pay it forward and share this episode with one friend one colleague, one associate, maybe one person that you just met. Uh, all you have to do is grab the link and send in a text message, email, DM on social media, wherever. Just pay it forward. We just ask that you refer us. And we've been so thankful to have a tremendous amount of growth lately. And that is all thanks to you. And uh, the only way that we can continue to grow and continue to bring this type of value is if we earn the value of your introductions, because you know your seal of, of approval is the most valuable thing. And we're just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for you. And I want to ask you also, if you haven't done so already, give us a rating review and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcasts on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. Um, that's important to us. And we're so thankful. I read every single review. So I just want to thank everybody who has already done that. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Dave Evans, who is the co-director of the Stanford Design Lab and co-founder a co-founder of Electronic Arts, EA, one of the world's largest interactive entertainment companies. He holds a BS and an MS in mechanical engineering from Stanford. And without further ado, you are really going to need to buckle up because today's episode, it's vigorous, it's exciting. Um, you're going to connect to his journey, you're going to connect to his story, you're going to connect to many of the reasons why um, he has dedicated his life towards helping other people design their life uh, in a way that's going to create fulfillment and joy. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited for you to reflect on your own journey, on your own story, on your own experiences that have caused you to feel the way you feel or be passionate about the things that you're passionate about. I also want to encourage you to open up and recognize that, you know what, where you're at right now is exactly where you're meant to be. And uh, I think that you're, you're really going to love this. And I think this is going to be really encouraging, exciting and practical and applicable immediately. So without further ado, please enjoy this amazing episode with Dave Evans. Dave Evans, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Elevate, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. Well, no, I'm so excited about this conversation. And it's so interesting. I mean, your life is, has been about designing a life. And this podcast is about designing a life. And you know, there's a there's a pathway that we've kind of identified for that. And you know, I'm just so excited about our conversation today. So I just appreciate you taking time. But Dave, before we dive into this conversation, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people that know you best would describe you, how would you go about doing that? 
Well, in fact, even as you said, my life is about designing my life and your podcast is about designing your life. You know, well, my sixth career is finally about designing my life, which is, you know, if you can't fix it, feature it and taking, you know, five other incredibly inept attempts at trying to figure out how to do things and, and learning along the way what does and doesn't work. And then, well, when in doubt, you know, take the solution and hand it back to somebody else. Um, so, um, you know, people would describe me as high energy. People would describe me as curious. People would describe me as relentless. Um, um, and exhausting. Um, and people would re- uh, hopefully would describe me as, as reasonably teachable, you know. Um, and uh, not too long ago, I was talking to one, my eldest son, who's now 40, um, you know, and at one point he stops and goes, Dad, you know, I, I, I actually want to compliment you because, you know, you actually ask me questions and most guys your age don't. <laughs> you know, I said, well, thank you. You know, um, uh, but no, I'm, I'm at this point, I mean, I'm learning more from my kids than teaching them. That's for darn sure. Yeah. I like the, uh, Hey, I actually want to ask you a question. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know this is surprising, but here we go. Yeah. But no, you definitely strike, strike me as the the high energy. I mean, that was the first thing that came from you as we started our conversation pre-recording. So I just appreciate that. Um, think about your upbringing and your backstory. Give us a sense for the folks who may not be familiar with you a little bit. Talk to us about where you came from, what life was like kind of growing up and so forth. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm 68, gonna be 69 in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I've got Happy five. Birthdays. Thank you, coming up in April. Um, you know, and um, got five adult kids, all married, four with children. I got nine grandchildren. Um, my chosen daughter, my goddaughter, reminds me, no, no, she fully counts. So her two kids too. So I've actually got 12 kids and 11 grandkids. Um, and you know, which keeps you reasonably busy and four part-time jobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, you know, so I'm a boomer through and through, you know, I grew, you know, I went to college during Vietnam and the Watergate era, spent a night in jail protesting against the war, all that stuff. So I'm kind of a tried, hopefully not a, you know, thank you, boomer kind of boomer, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm of that generation. You know, I mean, I really wanted to go to Woodstock and couldn't get there, um, you know, that kind of thing. And um, but I grew up in Southern California. I was the third of three children. I mean, certainly, you know, the handful of most formative events in my life begins with probably still the all-time winner, which is my father killed himself when I was nine. Um, now, all we knew is he died suddenly. Um, we didn't understand the mechanism of his death until her late 20s, early 30s. That was a well-kept family secret, but that's pretty darn formative. So um, very early on, you know, at the age of nine, I mean, literally the first conscious thought I had the moment I learned of my father's death was, oh, well, I, I guess I'm the man of the family now. Wow. Now that was a couple, you know, I've, you know, bought, you know, pools and, you know, spare bedrooms for about six counselors figuring all that out. Um, but um, clearly that was a coping mechanism because um, I just couldn't bear the weight of the grief. So when in doubt, let's get busy. You know, so I started being dependable and reliable really early. I didn't do adolescence at all. Just completely skipped all that stuff. Um, you know, just kind of, yeah, I was sort of a nine-year-old going on 30, um, which I'm sure looked pretty strange at times and pretty annoying. Um, but nonetheless, it was always my conviction that, well, you know, I'll just have to figure it out. So this, this, what I would now call, you know, get curious, try stuff, you know, iterate prototyping um, in design language. You know, I was depending on myself. Now I was not autonomous. Like I don't want to hear from anybody, but you know, my primary, you know, support system had fallen down. Mom was there. The family stayed together. We were okay. Um, But my, I, I realized the first person I needed to ask the question now, what was myself and then go out and ask other people to help you. Go get the help you need because it's not coming for free. Um, and that has served me really well. Um, you know, it was, I mean, if I had it to do over, I would tell dad, don't do this. You know, um, it would have been better if you stuck around. But, you know, you got to find the dividends. Um, and so that was very formative. And I went off and, and you know, had a, you know, classical all-American childhood in suburbia and then ended up going to Stanford and had a great time. Um, tried to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. Did not have a passion and had a really, really hard time with that. Um, it's even in the book, but, you know, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist because I liked the Jacques Cousteau TV show. I mean, that's the depth of the discernment I had um, um, and started to try to do that at Stanford. Um, never realizing, by the way, that Stanford owned a marine biology research facility 35 miles away in Monterey uh, that I never went to visit. You know, so I just sort of made up the answer and did the wrong thing, you know, way over invested, way too long and bad ideas. Um, and, um, you know, finally got out of Stanford in five years with a master's and uh, and bachelor's in mechanical engineering, which I did in five quarters at the very end, by the way. I mean, I massively mismanaged my undergraduate experience. Um, 
And so, you know, I teach the class that nobody was teaching at the time, you know, I mean, some people say that, you know, um, you know, God often comes to you disguised as your life, and we're all walking wounded, and maybe, maybe your calling is taking that which served you and giving it back. I mean, and frankly, you know, having been fatherless and rudderless, you know, I try to show up now as, as a helper and give people some guidance. Um, I mean, so I guess I'm really just walking out my wounds, you know, and fell into high tech after I tried to solve the energy crisis. I had a passion by the time I graduated, solved the energy crisis. I was a certified advanced energy technologist from Stanford University, paid for by Chevron Research with a sticker. I was a certified energy futurist. Oh, by the way, there is no energy future industry. We don't care. Just give me a bigger SUV. In, 19, <laughs> in 1976, you know, if I had walked out of graduation into a cryogenic freezer and completely frozen myself for 35 years, then popped out, timing was perfect. Wow. Um, but I was a little early, spent four years massively failing at trying to take a job that didn't exist um, and then fell into high tech. Um, you know, Apple early days and you got pulled up by my boss into co-founding this thing called Electronic Arts. And, you know, that went kind of big and on it goes, you know, and then, you know, worked my butt off and um, fell into consulting largely as a way to solve the problem of never seeing my kids awake. I mean, startups were were pretty aggressive. It turns out I was a closet workaholic. Um, the line I came out with, maybe alcoholics shouldn't work in liquor stores. <laughs> so if you, you happen to be an unconscious workaholic, high-tech startups is not a good place for you to be, a dangerous place. So I went into consulting where the projects were small and bite-sized, and there was actually this thing called stopping every now and then, and then actually go home and see your kids while they're awake. Um, that worked out great. I was a gainfully unemployed marketing guy for 25 years, um, you know, and had finally figured out what to do with myself. And, you know, when in doubt as a marketing guy, you're just a storyteller, right? I mean, storytellers and teachers and pastors, they all do the same thing. Um, and so I was talking to people about that along the way, and everybody had the same problem. What do I do with the rest of my wild and wonderful life? How do you figure that out? You know, none of us got born to the manual. Um, and then, you know, bada bing, bada boom, I got asked to teach a class at Cal in 1999. And eight years later, my buddy Bill Burnett gets a full-time job at Stanford, where he worked part-time a little bit. And I go, ooh, now he's got a key card. He's actually, he can open, he can open locked doors. Um, hey, Bill, you want to talk about this thing in 2007? And then boom, off we go, Life Design Lab and the rest is history. So that's, you know. Dave, uh, can we just bottle that energy up and share it with every <laughs> other guest? Uh, you just gave us the most amazing synopsis of your life. I feel like I've known you now since you were nine years old. Yeah, well, you know, I'm old and you got to talk fast to cover the material. It's only an hour show. I mean, come on. That was amazing. I just appreciate your openness there. But there's so many, you know, lessons and wisdom uh, from what you just shared. And I almost feel like we could just wrap this thing up right now and just call it a day and, and say thank you. But obviously, there's so much more. And, and there's just a couple of things that I just wanted to just quickly highlight before we dive into the next part of our discussion. Uh, you mentioned, you know, just that experience at nine years old, and obviously it took you many, many years to uncover and unpack uh, your feelings there. And maybe even the conscious thought of, hey, well, I'm the man of the house now. Now what? Uh, and, and you just you, you, you bounce back to say, well, you know what, we got to get the help that we need. If we don't have the answers, we gotta go find the answers. And you said you you've got to find the dividends. I almost feel like you found the gift in that tremendous challenge. And you've been able to create this really what you just described the story of a life that has created so much meaning, fulfillment and joy. And, and I know we'll talk about the designing of life and, and how you've been able to uncover this yourself. But I almost feel like that experience or in some of these experiences have created that for you that now you're giving to others. Yeah, it is really absolutely what I've done is um, figured it out absolutely the hard way, you know, did it massively inefficiently, uh, particularly up until about the age of 38. Um, 38 was a huge turning year for me. But um, up until then, I mean, there's a whole bunch I would do differently if I had it to do over again. But that doesn't mean I have regret. I mean, that doesn't mean regret. That just means you're paying attention and learning as you grow. But um, I have a policy against regret, actually. Um, what was it about the year 38 that was a turning point for you? Well, it turned out um, a bunch of stuff came together. It was um, during that, keep in mind that, you know, I, I, I was never that career minded, actually. I didn't want to make a lot of money. wasn't interested in being in charge of stuff. You know, I wanted to work, wanted to, wanted to leave the world better than I found it. Um, but I mostly just wanted to be a great dad. Um, you know, I love kids. I did youth work, you know, as the YMCA counselor with a clipboard and the whistle, you know, and I did, you know, taught Sunday school and coached Little League, all that stuff, you know, and I, I messed with everybody else's kids. I couldn't wait to get my own. Um, and then when I had them, 
I had fallen into high tech and I was at Apple in the early days. I was the first mouse product manager. I arrived six weeks before the IPO. The company grew from 800 to 5,000 people the first year I was there. I mean, it was kind of fast moving. Yeah. Um, it, it just went nuts, you know. Um, and, um, and, and that was really interesting. Turns out I have ADD really bad, which means it, you think it means you can't, you can't think about things very effectively. No, it means you're just really easily attracted. And there's so many shiny objects in a fast moving high tech startup. Um, that I would constantly look down to grab the second half of my sandwich on my desk and it would have been gone. And like, who ate my sandwich? And then I look up at the clock and it's nine o'clock at nine and go, where, where the hell did 1.30 go? <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, maybe I missed dinner too. I mean, that happened hundreds of times. Um, so while that was, and then I had kids and literally the fateful moment, you know, at about 33, I guess, um, 32, 33, was Saturday morning early. I'm sitting in the family room with a cup of coffee in my lap, and I overhear my three-year-old son, Robbie, now 38 with a family of five, um, talking to his mom, going, Mommy, can we play with Daddy today, or will he just fall asleep in the chair again? Ooh. So Rob's experience of dad was the guy that's either gone or asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not quite the same as dead, but functionally it is. So you're like, wait, so I'm, I'm literally an absent father. This is not okay. I got to fix this. Um, and it took six years. Um, and 38 was the year I figured it out. And largely because of the outside in um, interruption of my mother dying of cancer. Um, and the last couple of months of that, I took a leave of absence of my then job as a VP of marketing for a telecom startup. Um, and during that hiatus of helping my mother die, um, I stopped long enough to really think things through and a few consulting projects sort of came my way and I went, well, gee, maybe I could do this. Um, and I never went back to work. And that was 38. And so I, I got, you know, the whole watching your mother die and what do my parents mean to me? And then I'd started working really on finding out the rest of my father's story, which was kind of a black hole. And, you know, how in the world did he end up thinking, you know, killing yourself when you got three kids in a family is a smart thing to do. Um, um, you know, and he was a brilliant physicist. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, he wasn't, you know, drilling and hitting himself in the head with a stick, you know, what the hell happened? So I got that all kind of figured out. And 38 was about the year it all came together, including then the, the, the shift from corporate life and startups to freelance life as a consultant really, really worked for me. So um, was this after co-founding Electronic Arts as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I walked out of EA two and a half years in. I mean, I left 40% of my stock option on the table. And fortunately, I've had the wisdom to never once, never once calculate the cash value of the stock I want. <laughs> um, because, um, you know, it was just not working. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, you know, is the trade worth it is the question. And I think that's yeah. the answer that you found that yeah. year. So there's there's just so much wisdom in that. But Well, and that's a hard question. I mean, your, your listeners, these are high performance people, right? You know, and they're, I mean, the hardest question is what do you want? Mm -hmm. And what do you, and what are you willing to pay? Yeah. Well, and the other question that you you even mentioned, uh, as you were kind of you know, so eloquently describing your life, what do I do with this one wild and precious life? When did you become immersed with that question? Was it at the age of 38 as well? I don't think that question ever wasn't on my mind. I don't, I don't have any recollection of not wondering, hmm, what do I do with this person I've got? And it never occurred to me that it was anybody's job but my own to figure that out. Um, you know, and, and then even later on, I, I, I got into uh, and continue to participate deeply in a very different way than I did back then, you know, as a teenager um, into religion and spiritual life. And so if you think God exists and you think God loves you and, you know, God even might you know, have something in mind for you, then that gets even, frankly, initially worse. Because not just like, well, what do I do? Like, what does God want me to do? Right. Um, and, and, and by the way, where and how do you figure that out? Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that community turns out to mostly suck at helping people figure that out. So, I mean, the, I went to the marketplace, you know, I mean, bosses, no help at all. You know, um, the academy went to, you know, the career center at Stanford, no help at all. You know, and went to the church, no help at all. I mean, just like, I mean, like there's a conspiracy, all the grownups have gotten together and nobody tell the kids how it works. Just make it as hard as you possibly can and mostly tell them bullshit. 
you know, um, and then just stand back and watch. That's what it seemed like. I mean, I'm difficult now in my 20s. I was furious. I was insufferable. Like, I can't believe you people are this bad at this. Mm -hmm. And you're also like, well, wait a minute. Well, everybody says find your passion. You're like, what What am I even passionate about? Right. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't the line back in the 70s, but it was you're supposed to find your way or find your thing, you know, and you're, but you'll just know like, no, you won't. Actually, <laughs> Sorry. Well, the, the, the phrase today is find your passion, right? Yeah, and so you're speaking is. to a lot of people. People are like, well, I get that. It's like, what am I actually passionate about? And you had that struggle for, for decades yeah. and decades. Yeah. And Bill and I talk a lot about dysfunctional beliefs, highly popular ideas that are even in effect or just flat out untrue. And one of our favorites is, is what's your passion? Like, it's a completely dysfunctional question. Um, the reason being, research shows quite clearly, eight out of 10, you know, competent, compassmentist, three-digit IQ-bearing people answer the question, what's your passion? With either, gosh, Dave, I haven't found any message. I sure hope I do. Uh, or I got a bunch. Which one did you want to hear about first? Now, either that I don't have it yet or I got a pile of them person doesn't have the one life organizing passion that will make everything clear that that's your true north and off we go. Um, this brings up an issue for me, which is terribly important, which is be very, very careful about your questions. The questions you determine to authorize as being life directing or life judging. You know, because nowadays you say, hey, what's your passion? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. Like, what's wrong with you? Okay, you just judge my life. Thank you. Um, if you're going to direct or judge my life with a question, you darn well better understand what the belief system embedded in that question is. And all questions have belief systems. What does, what's your passion believe? Number one, everybody has a passion. Number two, you will know it early in life. Number three, the world will let you do it. Number four, you will probably be able to make a living, maybe a killing if you're listening to this podcast, doing your passion and eh, all five of those are false. Um, I mean, not one of them is actually true. If they line up for you, that's great. We're not anti-passion. We're anti the presuppositional a priori assumption of passion. Um, most people who live into a passion and say they've really found their life and they are passionate about it, passion was the outcome of the well-lived de developmental high growth life, not the starting point. So passion's great. Just don't presume it's the starting point for everybody. There's nothing wrong with you. You haven't got one. What you might have to do is go work your ass off long enough to actually invent one. So when you say be careful with your questions, yeah. what's a practical way of doing that? Is it to consider that there's a belief system behind every question and to, you know, just take a step back and consider that before you ask yourself or someone else? Or what, what's a practical application of that? Well, you know, I, I think the I think the way this sounds horrible, the way to stay practical with something is keep it practical and don't slip into the theoretical. Now, I like understanding. So I was, I was talking to my counselor recently. I'm, I'm spending a little time with a counselor these days because I'm I'm 14 months past losing my wife to cancer. Um, so my, my beloved wife, that, Claudia, thank you. Um, you know, um, she broke the contract. We had a deal mid 80s. Right. Minimum, what is she doing? You know? But she and she off, you know, at 70, you know, 15 years ahead of time. So we're going to have a conversation about that later. But I digress. Um so, but, you know, keep it, keep it practical, you know? And so, and my counselor, said, boy, you really like understanding stuff. I do. Well, I find understanding stuff that's actually helpful. Um, so if you're struggling with these kind of issues, first of all, you don't have to look very far. I would only worry about the questions that you notice yourself getting stuck on or that you're agonizing on, or particularly the ones that populate what I call that hamster wheel of the mind. You know, you get, you're thinking through something, what about this? And then, oh, and then that, you know, and there's this little three or four logical sequence set of questions that leads back to the first one you started with, and then you do it again, and then a couple hundred times a minute, you know, between three and four in the morning. That's the hamster wheel of your brain. And when you can hear that squeaky little sound, your brain's doing that, like, oh, man, there's something in there not working. Now I'm getting stuck. Okay, which question am I getting stuck on? Hey, let's go take another look at that question. You know, boy, I just, I got to find my passion, and, you know, before I get a job. And that's not working at all. Hmm. Let's go take a look at that question. So I would, I would say just seriously analyze the questions that are getting in your way and see whether or not they deserve to. This is why we call reframing is terribly important. So, you know, the reframe is not what's my passion, you know, like we get, we get the passion question and the purpose question all the time. Like, what's my purpose? I'll go, well, I'm not sure you have one, um, but how about living purposefully? Well, where do I find that? Well, you start with what's most attractive to you now and start going in that road and see what happens next. That's what we call wayfinding. You know, you don't start with the answer. You start with the process. Like, oh, if I actually don't have a passion, what's the process of passion formation? And how could I participate in that without being in a rush? You can't, you know, it's a terribly inappropriate metaphor these days, but you can't get nine women in a closet and get a baby in a month. It just doesn't work. 
Um, there's some stuff that you simply have to let the organic process be. And if you can accept the organic process of, let's say you're a slow passion forming person, or you might not even be a passion bearing person. I get one of those I can tell you about. Um, then, then fine, what you want to live into is what's real, not should. This is, we try not to should on you. We recommend you don't shut on yourself either. It's not very helpful. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of, we. this brings us to your work really, which is designing your life. It's designing your work life, designing your new work life. Obviously, New York Times bestselling books and, and thought processes for reframing, repositioning, and, and really taking things to where, you know, you you, you want to take them. And, and I actually think it's interesting the way that you've kind of framed that work is that, hey, everything around us was designed by someone. There was a problem somebody was solving there's an opportunity and there was a vision there was a process towards getting there but when did you start to realize that and, and apply that mindset towards designing a life well i think it was um again the way these courses happened um again I, you know i i like being a dad i like young people i had done youth work all my life um at one point you know in my 40s, I'd gotten very busy raising a family and, and running a business and gotten away from all that on the volunteer side of things. And then in the late 90s, sort of thought I had time to come back to it. I'd been away from it for about a decade. And I thought, well, gosh, young people are thinking about different things than in 1998 than they were in 82 or whatever. Um, and I wonder what's on people's minds. And so I went out and started talking to everybody that I thought was doing interesting work with young adults. Um, and that I'm having coffee with Randy Bear, who runs a place called Westminster House, which is a, a private community and dorm for 100 years um, at Cal Berkeley. Um, we're sitting at Cafe Strada, the cool student coffee joint, you know, right across from the law school and next door to his house. And he goes, you should teach a class. And I go, well, that's a great idea, Randy. Just a couple of problems, you know. Um, I don't have a curriculum. I don't have a PhD. I'm not in the faculty. Don't know to be over here. And it's a horrible drive. But other than that, that's a great idea. You know, and he goes, I can solve everything <laughs> but the drive. And I went, oh, that's pretty interesting. So I, that's how this whole thing got started. Um, but, but, but along the way, um, you know, it turned in. So I sort of came up with a class that was called um, Finding Your Vocation is Your Calling Calling. So the whole idea of, of how to teach people the empirical process of working it out. Um, and then when Bill and I met up and Bill joined the design team faculty, in 2007, I said, you know, design thinking is exactly the way this works. And he goes, totally. I know exactly what you're talking about. Let's do this thing. So the idea, um, and at that point, both of us had about, you know, 75 years combined business and career experience. You know, I'd been thinking about stuff really hard through, through my personal family story, through my faith story. Bill had, Bill um, concluded he wanted to be a good father, didn't know how to do that. So he got into a men's group. I mean, I, there was a small group I formed in 1973 that's been meeting for 47 years. Bill's been in a men's group for about 30. You know, so early on, both of us were guys who were trying to learn, trying to take intentional responsibility for growing and getting better at this stuff. You know, and then as you do that, a piece at a time, you can look back and gee, if I could add up all the things I learned in retrospect and put them together in a coherent kind of a way and deliver that up front rather than, you know, one bite at a time on the backside over 30 years, what would that look like? And that's what the design your life stuff is. And it's surprisingly simple. So talk to me about how design thinking, how does this mindset apply to the way that we design a life of fulfillment and meaning? Could you talk a little bit sure. about that? Yeah, my the, the way to introduce that, first of all, is, is the best way to understand design thinking, which, by the way, is about a 15-year-old rebranded moniker for what, going back to 1963, when the design program started at Stanford and, and, and began to be the first of many people inventing what we now call design thinking. It was then known and still reform, formally referred to as HCD, human-centered design. And human-centered design um, you know, has been around for a long, long time. It's the integration of art, psychology, and engineering. It's an innovation methodology for a certain class of problems. Now it distinguishes itself as a way of thinking. It's not a craft set of skills, like you know, drawing and shaping and modeling, you know, you can get you can get a master's degree in, in design at Stanford without being able to draw very well. And there's certain design schools go like that's immoral, you know. Um, so there's craft design over here, ergonomic design, craft design, you know, furniture design, you know, car design. Wonderful field, been around for centuries. You know, go back to the Bauhaus and all that stuff. Uh, then you got design thinking, your human-centered design, which is an innovation methodology. It's a technique for coming up with an idea, not a particular skill set. Um, and in that regard, best way to understand how we think as designers is how other people think other ways. So there's engineering thinking, 
where you solve your way forward because you're working on tame problems that are well-bounded for which you have equations that work repeatedly every time. That's a great thing. I got two engineering degrees. Engineers solve things. They get the right answer. And by the way, I think engineering thinking is the most dominant thinking in the modern world. And it sneakily runs around telling you, you should have the right answer. You should get this right. And very often there is no right. So that's a big issue. Second is business thinking. Where there is no right, there's just better, right? So you get business people on the line. You know, you're never done. You're never right. Your portfolio is never perfectly tuned, right? But you can be better. You can, you know, you, and you can have better customer satisfaction. You can have better profitability. You can have more ecological supply chains. You can have more diverse cultures, um, but you're never done. You go to B school, you can actually learn how to get better quantitatively, you know, and so we optimize our way forward. So engineers solve their way forward. Business people optimize their way forward. Researchers analyze their way forward. You know, bureaucrats process their way forward. These are fundamental mechanisms that approach certain classes of problems. There's this whole class called wicked problems. That's actually an urban planning term from the 70s. Um, and a wicked problem is a human problem where you don't know what you're looking for until you find it. The solution you come up with, you cannot replicate elsewhere because it's totally context sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And wicked problems, what you're really doing is inventing a place we've never been before called the future. And the reason you can't analyze it or solve it is we have no data on the future. So what do you do? It's got to be an empirical process. And in design, we build our way forward. So this is where the prototype iteration, which is the cardiopulmonary system of design. You know, you come in, you have some ideas, we're really good at the idea thing, and everybody goes, oh, you're the, the post-it wastage people, you know. Um, you know, we wipe out whiteboards, the post-it notes. And that's true, but a lot of that's done poorly. But then we have a bunch of ideas for the purpose of moving to prototyping, which is an empirical iteration where you try stuff out quickly, set the bar low, not a great big complex costly thing. It's not a focus group. It's not a beta test. It's a raw prototype. And you learn your way forward. That's wayfinding, not navigation. Navigation is like a GPS. I know where I am, know where I'm going, know all the data in between, give me the optimal pathway. That's GPS. That's navigation. Wayfinding, I kind of know where I am. I have no idea where I'm going. I have a little bit of information about what's in front of me. Tell you what, I'm going to run over that tree and see what I can see from there. That's wayfinding. So life is wayfinding. Life is an improv skip. And guess what? Just like in theater, you can learn how to do improv better. We're giving people improv tools for this thing called life where we're just making it up as we go along. You get better at making it up as you go along and you hang up with us. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. You know, that's one of the biggest realizations that I've had over the past few years is that most people that we all think have it completely figured out are making it up themselves as well. They're making it up along the way. And, and, uh, you know, it, it gives, it, it almost brings down a lot of the barriers. It's like, we, we think that we should be perfect. We think that we should have everything optimized. We think that we should know the right and wrong answer. Like an engineer would think we think that we have all these answers. You know, we think we should know our purpose. We think that we should know the reasons, you know, and really our passions and all this stuff. But I think it just kind of breaks down all those barriers. But you, I think you're really speaking to Elevate Nation in a big way, because in many ways, I would think that our listeners or our community would like to optimize their life. They'd like to maximize their life. But talk to me about sort of the balance of thinking that you kind of, you look at that thought process as. Yeah, I mean, from what you told me about your listeners, you know, so those of you we're talking to today, but the Elevate, Elevate community, um, there's the good news and the bad news. And the good news is, you know, you're, you really probably are highly positioned to have what we call the well-lived and joyful life. You know, because you care, you're thinking, you're teachable, you're listening to their ideas, you're putting the energy in, you, you, you believe you can get better, you know, um, you're, you're bringing your A game. All that is huge. And you're interested and you're curious. All that is massively in your favor. And 
you're at great risk because if you're this kind of person, you are so susceptible so, to some incredibly attractive, but turns out to be massively dangerous dysfunctional beliefs. Um, so, you know, watch what you wish for. An awful lot of these people come to us, you know, they're, they're 35, they're 42. I'm like, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got it all. And, and it sucks. Who ordered this? You know, and what, what feeds that a little bit? First of all, you know, our prime, the big idea in the first book is there's not one of you. I mean, one of the claims we make on a regular basis, and I deeply believe this, and I've yet to have a single example that disproves it. All of us contain way more aliveness than one lifetime will permit you to express, i.e. there's more than one of you in there. Mm. In fact, depending on your anthropology and your philosophy, you know, if you think there's like way more in you than a lousy 75, 85, 90 years will allow you to have. Now, most of your listeners are probably going to live to 100. They're going to live till for, they're going to work for 80 years. They're going to have five or six careers and probably 30 to 50 jobs, unless they're going to be totally independent, you know, portfolio people just operating off, off their assets and they're going to do like hundreds of projects. So there's a lot coming on yet, you know. Um, and if that's true, right, then it's absolutely the case that by the time you die, you will be mostly leaving you on the table. You will mostly be unexpressed by the time you die. I mean, again, my dear wife, Claudia, I mean, she literally died in my arms December 4th, year and a half ago, you know, at the age of 70. And trust me, she wasn't done. Um, so you, your picture of what life is about, if I'm trying to have it all or do it all or make sure that every little bit of me gets a chance to be expressed, good freaking luck with that. I mean, if you're that small, okay, fine. You know, if you think 70 years is enough time for you to be completely exhausted, well, great, but I don't think we're even close here. That means now, this is the thing I mentioned earlier, before we started, fulfilled versus fully alive. We have a slide we put up all the time for the freshman at Stanford that says, don't try to cram more in, get more out of. You can't do it all. If you're, if you, you suddenly, you finally, you're the dog that caught the car. You got into Stanford, the hardest undergrad program to get into in the country. And now I want to have the whole thing. Oh, not a chance. You got four years, which is why there's a Ritalin epidemic. I mean, you know, what's the solution? Oh, no, take more drugs and don't sleep. Oh, that's a good solution. Um, you know, I want to get more in, get more in, get more in. That, and the cram more in thing, you know, I'll bet there's some cram more in people listening to us right now. And the problem with that is it believes that more is better. And once you really get it, that you cannot even come close to having it all, that's now the good news. That's from FOMO to JOMO. From the fear of missing out, something cool goes by on you. I've got time. Like, oh my God, was that it? Was that it? That was it. This thing I'm doing is the less cool thing. That's the cool thing. Back to engineering thinking. There is an primary most cool thing. It's over there. I missed it. Shit. You know, um, and as opposed to like, oh, hey, cool thing going by. What a lovely reminder. I live in a target rich world. How fabulous it is to know that the moment this thing I'm currently doing starts to lose its, its vibe, you know, there's other stuff going on. And if you just wait by the stream, stuff's going to flow by. I mean, the you know, life is fabulous. You know, it takes a little work. You got to pay attention. But hey, we're good to go here. I mean, it's so fabulous missing out. By the way, if you are, if you're not aware of what you're missing out, you're just not paying attention. So if you got no FOMO at all, eh, it's time to pay more attention. The you know, so so wel welcome welcome to this radical world. And so if I'm a high performance person. Now that leaves, I've got some pretty tough discernment to make. Like, when is it just be more present to what's in front of me to get more out of it, get the fullness of what's here? And when is it time for one more thing? That's a very important discernment to make. Um, and it takes some iteration to get to it. I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking that myself right now. Somebody asked me in January, so Dave, what does the new year bring to you? And I went, whoa, that's a really interesting question. Because in 2022, I haven't asked that question for seven years. I've been in nothing but demand response nonstop for seven years. I've not even begun to think about what's Dave's personal preference because I haven't had time for any. And I don't mind that, but most of these are constraints I've built. Um, what I call the freedom of constraint. I don't, I don't spend, I spent no time in the last seven years kind of going, hmm, what should I do today? I know exactly what to do today. It's great. Um, and now that's no longer true. Wow, now what? You know, and that's a big question. So, but it's, it's still going to be finite. So the number one, I mean, it's a long answer to your question, but the number one thing I would invite your listeners to do, because I'm going to guess that most of them are, you know, young, early, mid-career people on that incredibly rising steep curve when it's about more. I mean, you know, more money, more houses, more kids, more cars, more you know, whatever. You know, my brother-in-law measures the quality of his life with the number of pistons under his care, you know. Um, and, um, you know, and that's fine. That's what, that's what the acquisitive part of life is all about. But at some point, there's, you know, too much of a good thing. 
And what you want to do is understand how to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. And the distinction is fulfilled and fully alive, right? Instead of just more, that's the difference. If I'm always trying to get the next thing, and what I'm mostly aware of is what I don't quite have yet, right? Then I'm largely experiencing my dissatisfaction. As opposed to, because, because there's this lie that says you can't have enough. Um, and, and, and so I'm trying to be fulfilled. I'm trying to have everything I want. As opposed to, I know I can't have everything I want. Thank God my want is bigger than my life so that when things change, I've still got some juice. Thank God I'm not satisfied. Hmm. I love that. It just means I'm interested. I believe in growth. I'm going to get better. If I'm going to get better, I was worse. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm not done. I'm not bored. If you didn't want anything, that means boredom's coming soon. Like I've got everything I want. Oh man, start your stopwatch. When's that going to run out of gas? Yeah. You know, how do you recharge the battery on that watch? So, so, so learn to love your longing while then say, oh, and, and, and the present moment is all I ever have. So how to be fully alive, fully present to what is in front of me and know the fullness of that, that's where the well of joyful life actually is. And I can actually relax in the acceptance that more is coming. And if I'm always going to be better, then I know I am presently worse. And you, one thing that shifted for me later in life was, oh, I mean, I can already tell you what's wrong with me that deserves to be better tomorrow. Hmm. Of course it can, you know, uh, which doesn't mean, that, and there's nothing wrong with me. Today. That's a big distinction. You know, I think especially in this world where we want to continue to grow, you know, we want to continue to outperform, you know, our recent past or who we were yesterday. It's not that we're trying to fix who we are. It's not like that we're broken. Um, yeah. Thinking about that in parallel with this thought of, hey, designers don't analyze think, worry, complain their way forward. They build their way forward. forward. Talk to me about that thought. So again, you know, one time we were about to go on TV in Canada for like the 5 a.m. live news show. I'm sure watched by, you know, two snakes and a squirrel. But the the show got behind and the assistant producer grabs me and Bill behind the camera and quietly says, guys, we're a little behind. We need to to cut your, you know, nine minute interview down to like six. And by the way, it's got to start with the book in a sentence. And I went, dude, we're Stanford instructors. We, I in particular, as I've already proven here, are not renowned for short answers to complex questions. I don't think I can give you 269 pages in a sentence. Again, it goes, well, then you're off the air. I said, give me a minute. Um, and so, no, we're not going off the air. And so I came up with what we now, in fact, we, we use this as a centerpiece in the, in the second book, um, the short version, which is the post-it note version. It's not one sentence, it's actually four, but it's only 10 words. And so if you haven't got time to read all those pages in the book, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, write this down, this is all you need to know. Get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. Lather, rinse, repeat. Boom. And, and literally, so how does that work? So that, that, and by the way, two of those are prototyping, that tells you our bias. So get curious, that's the energy like, you know, that goes forward. You know, what do I want to know? We actually say the process is driven by curiosity more than by strategy or priority or, you know, it's really go with the energy. And then what does that mean? Well, go, you know, go talk to people who are doing the stuff you're already doing. This is technically in psychology known as surrogation versus analysis. It turns out it is more motivating and more helpful to learn your way forward through the lives of people than through lots of data. Data is fine, but it turns out actually hearing the story from other people is an experience of surrogation. What's it really like to be that? Even if, you know, I don't know Tyler at all, right? But if, you know, learning about podcasting by talking to you is actually more helpful to me than by reading five articles. Now I should do both. They're complimentary, but you know, um, you know, if you've got portfolio people online, they're pretty good at reading reports. You know, so go talk to people and then try stuff. Try to have an, what would it be like to live in New Mexico? Well, maybe let's go do that for you know, take a three day weekend, but don't be a tourist. Be a short term resident. You know, go go actually try what it would be like to live that life. You know, don't sell the house and move first. You know, don't don't quit your job and go to school full time and get a master's degree in public health and then finally get a job at the county and then go. Oh, this is boring. Um, So when you say try, that's building your way forward. That's building a way forward. Yeah. So prototyping of a product, you know, when I was the mouse product manager and had 300 mouse prototypes under my desk in a big box, that's easy to imagine. How do you prototype a life? So a life prototype comes in two forms, a conversation and a lived experience. So talk to people and try stuff. Hmm. And try small stuff, set the bar low and clear it. 
Yeah, get off the sidelines. Yeah, get off the get your get your get your shoes dirty. Yeah, why why is story so important to that? Well, it turns out, you know, neurophysiology now knows that we are story making engines. Um, your mind won't even retain information that it can't put into a memory map that's narrative oriented. Um, so, you know, life is in fact a story we tell ourselves. Like, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, Tyler? And you tell me some story. Then I go justify your answer. <laughs> I mean, what do you get off telling me? It's why is it like that? Yeah. Why is it like that? What's why? Why is it like that? Because of a bunch of things you believe and see, and you're looking at your eyes, you know. And you can literally try this. Just sitting at your desk, you look at the window. Uh, Bill has a, a practice, um, which is every day he repeats out loud while he's shaving. I live in the best of all possible worlds. Now that's a, that's an ontological, self-evident fact. I also live in the worst of all possible worlds. But which one of those you pick to live in today has a huge effect on your experience. So I live in the best of all possible worlds, including how incredibly horrible screwed up it is right now. It's the only world we got, so it's the best one available. Um, and the next thing he says is, uh, everything I do today, I choose to do. He caught himself in the act of, you know, walking into the staff meeting going, oh, God, these staff meetings are so boring. Why do I go to these staff meetings? Oh, because I called them. <laughs> it's, my, it's my staff, you know, like, hey, I mean, you know, um, when we talk about decision making, you don't have to just make a good choice. You have to choose your choice. You make your choice and then you choose like, hey, I can't wait to go to staffing with these incredibly brilliant people. This is really fun. Um, you know, there might be something interesting come up. I wonder what's going to come up interesting today. It's got to be something interesting in here. You know, that mindset has a huge effect on the outcome. You know, so what we're trying to do is give people tools to move forward, including mindset. Mindset is a very big deal. Yeah, it is. And that's why we talk about it on this podcast. I mean, you get the choice to look at the world or your circumstances in one or another way. I mean, you can look at it in any way, right? And you get to yeah. choose. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is, is, is taking control of that story of that narrative ourselves, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I often say design thinking has a brutal commitment to reality. It's the only place it works. So when we have this bias to action and building your way for it, so I'm going to go out and talk to other people and try these experimental, and, and gee, what would it be like to work in the energy industry? I don't know. Let's go see if I can't find a way to get my feet wet. So you learn your way forward. That only works in reality. You can't just sit on the couch and make it up. Um, so you've got to live in reality. You can pick the narrative. So you're picking a narrative that reality will tolerate. But reality will tolerate quite a range of narrative. I'm not talking about being a Pollyannist, you know, silly eyed optimist. I'm not talking about it being a, you know, begrudging pessimist. I'm talking about being a generative objectivist, live objectively in reality and choose a generative way forward that serves both you and the world around you. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. So pick a narrative that reality will tolerate, meaning that there is a shred of evidence that you have in your reality that will support the narrative that you've chosen. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, none of us is living in the, I mean, I, I was telling everybody just yesterday on, on a long walk, I've always only had one question. What's going on? I mean, something's going on, you know, but literally, but what about, what about dark energy and black holes and what about quantum space? And we don't have that all figured. So we absolutely are not living in the fullness of reality. Nobody knows what's going on fully. As Einstein said, all metaphors are wrong. Some metaphors are helpful. So at any moment in time, I'm operating in a metaphor. I've got a little picture of what my life is about. That's the narrative. I'm writing up the narrative of the metaphor that I'm currently calling reality. And I just want to maintain some, you know, humility in face of the fact that my story isn't entirely true, but it's got to be true enough just to get me to the next furlong pole in this ongoing improv skit called life. You know, I am making it up as I go along, and I want that story to be part of what keeps it going. But I have a moral obligation for that story to be rooted in reality. So I'm not doing magical thinking, which is going to hurt me and other people. So it's got to be true enough. And when the truth comes back and says, you know, this really isn't working boys and girls, you need to, you need, you need to correct. I get a phone call at 10 o'clock at night, jumping into the, the shuttle as uh, Claudia and I came back from another one of our long trips to New York during the two years that I did hundred speaking gigs and was on the road nonstop, had a heck of a, heck of a good time. Um, and my daughter, Lisa calls and goes, dad, can you talk? I go, well, sure. You're up late. She goes, yeah, you just go off the plane, right? I go, yeah, I just got off the plane. She goes, so you're in the car. I go, yeah, I'm in the car. She goes, so you can't go anywhere. No. So I want to talk to you. I go, oh, what are we talking about? She goes, well, there's a problem. How can I help you on it? She goes, you're not helping me. We're helping you. Oh, what's the problem? You are. I'm the problem. Yeah. What's the problem? She goes, well, you keep saying you want to be a great dad. Where the hell have you been the last two years? Oh, there's an issue. Yeah. Now, by the way, if you're 30-something kids who have dual careers and small children, even remember you haven't died yet, it's a nice problem to have. 
So when when people do that and kind of go like, hey, where'd you go? Poppy, that's my grandfather. Name. You know, that's a really nice. But I had this fantasy that, you know, everybody thought, you know, what Claude and I were doing was was great. And they're kind of going, no, we think this kind of sucks. We don't like what you're doing at all. Oh, so I had a little intervention there. You know, um, my, I, it wasn't quite an intervention. You know, and then I said, are we OK? We had a long chat. And I said, are we done? She goes, well, we're done, but you're not done. I go, what do you mean? You have to talk to the boys now. I go, oh, every, every, you're just the first one. Yeah, we nominated me because I'm the nicest one. It's going to get tougher. I go, oh, great. I look forward to this. You know, and so, you know, you may, yeah, that is an intervention. You know, th this is where reality came back and said, I know what you think your kids are thinking is lovely for you, but it's entirely false. So you need to join reality in a, diff a different way. And it took, you know, it took about six months to fix it, but we fixed it. So, you know, reality will give you some feedback. Just be sure you take it. Yeah. And you talked about earlier reframing and being an important component uh, or strategy to, you know, to, to optimize this designer mindset, but yeah. redesigning or refreshing the way that you work, the way that you interact with your life. Um, yeah. you know, that's, that's one, right. You mentioned reframe and reenlist, uh, but talk about remodel, relocate and reinvent. Um, talk to me about the yes. thinking behind those. So that's the, 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 the centerpiece idea in the first book is there's more than one of you. And the centerpiece exercise for that is the Odyssey plan, the three versions of your next five years of your life, because there's more than one of you win there. And in the second book, the centerpiece idea is actually in chapter, I think it's seven, uh, which you, you just summarized, which is don't resign, redesign. The book is really, the second book is really helping people right where they are. And boy, in the face of the, the big quit and 20 million people going, I don't like this, um, it's pretty relevant. Um, and we're not saying don't quit. There's a whole chapter on how to quit well, too, by the way, because we're all going to quit at some point. But before you quit, the best person to get a new job from or a better life from is you. And so we have five, uh, four redesign in place strategies to make it better right where you are. And the first one is reframe and reenlist, which is literally just tell yourself a new story without making any external changes whatsoever. And, and it's not just making stuff up and lying to yourself. It's really, again, recalibrating a shift in reality requires a recalibrated story. Um, a brief example. Um, it's picking that narrative, right? That we're it is all about the narrative. It's absolutely about the narrative, which again, has to be rooted in reality. And that reality then has to be rooted in acceptance, which is for Bill and me, step zero of the six step design process starts with acceptance. You can't solve a problem you're not willing to have, right? So I went to New York the first time for a long time to go work for a think tank in the spring of 2016. Uh, I thought I couldn't go because we couldn't afford that loss of the teaching resource at Stanford. I'm teaching three classes a quarter, four, I'm just teaching about a triple full-time load. Um, and Bill goes, no, you got to go. It'll be great because it's going to force the younger fellows into the front of the room. We got to get succession planning going. This is going to be a forcing function. That's great. Just go. We'll figure it out. I go, okay, I'm gone. So I come back and go, hey, that was great. I can't wait to get back in the classroom. Bill goes, You're, you can't go back to the classroom. I go, what? He goes, you can't teach undergraduates anymore. I go, what? That's not the deal. And it goes, no, no, it's working great. If you come back in, it's going to stop everything. We got to get this thing running on its own too late. You can teach teachers now, but you can't teach students anymore. And I'm really pissed. I mean, I'm really pissed. I'm like, hey, I started this thing. You know, technically he's my, it goes, well, I'm, I'm your boss. Again. I know, but you can't pull rank on me. Um, and, uh, and, and so for a while, I was really upset. And I had to do a reframe. I'm like, at the same time, I'm still the co-founder of the Life Design Lab, but the game changed. And now it's not, oh, you know, hundreds of young people. I mean, it used to take me 45 minutes to walk across the big white plaza at Stanford because, I mean, nine sudden office hours conversations and 14 hugs is what it took to get from the bookstore, you know, to the cafe. I love that. You know, then I got to play. I can walk straight across. Nobody even stopped me. It was horrible. Um, but the reframe is, wow, I'm now helping Kathy, the managing director of the lab, you know, blow this thing out to other universities. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing our fellows flower and I'm doing coaching behind the scenes with them. I have to completely reframe what I'm in this for. Um, and, but, but I'm not changing it. So that's reframing and reenlist. You know, I've got a new job with myself that is just about me conversing with my, myself. Then the next one is remodel, my personal favorite, which is the, the really easy lift where I can just, you know, I can do the light remodel, move some furniture around, change some paint, um, or even a little slightly structural remodel, maybe move that wall out or open up that window. And most of the remodeling adjustments in a job um, can be done without your boss's approval. You know, it usually is, well, hey, you know, um, I have a really good time. I really love interviewing. 
the new employees in our rapidly growing company, you know, because um, I know a lot about how to get stuff done around here, you know, and, and sometimes they come back and ask for help. That's one of my favorite things to do. What if I just did more of that? What if I, what if I was like the onboarding coach? And when people ask for help, I said, well, hey, let's, let's not just answer your question real quickly in the hall. How about we get together for coffee before work one day for a half hour? And, and maybe I could do, and by the way, if you have any friends who are struggling, let them know I'd be glad to help them too. And you get the word out. And suddenly I'm, now I'm doing four morning coffee coaches conversations for two hour, extra hours a week. It's a night job, you know, or a morning job. You know, no, nobody's paying me for it. And it's a small allocation of time and a huge allocation of psychic benefit. I love doing this, you know, um, and that even could, you know, there are examples we have where people do that and it actually grows into, you know, the boss comes to you and says, by the way, word's coming to me that you're talking to all these people. Well, yeah, I have that. So it's, I hear it's going really great. Do you have any more time to do that? What, if, is, there something, is there something you could let go of if we had you do that 10 hours a week? So what oh. you did was you found the gift and the challenge and then yeah. you designed your way forward. You build your you way, forward, way forward yeah. and you tested the, you know, prototype and you got some good feedback there. Yeah. And it's a really light lift. Um, it's a really light lift and no permissions even involved. So that's remodeling. And then um, relocating is like, you know, I pick up from the marketing department and I end up in finance or vice versa. I did this years ago. I had a gal in the finance department comes to me. She goes, well, you know, I'd really like to be in marketing. I kind of go, okay, well, you know, what do you know? And this kind of stuff, you know, and we, and we figured out, I said, well, here's, I'll tell you what, um, I've got a problem. I've got, you know, competitive analysis is not getting near enough support. You don't really know marketing, so you don't know branding and positioning and, you know, but you're really good at the data, right? This is data, you know, so this is like the most quantitative piece of what we do. How about you start there? I, I, you know, you, you're now the head of the competitive analysis group, which is you, you know, and, and we need a bunch of information. We need a library. We need sales guys supported right and left in real time. Let's see if we can make this thing work well. I'm willing, I'm willing to, to bet six months worth of a salary on that if you can get your boss to give you a leave for six months. We do that, goes great, give your full-time job. It's in the book. And, and off we go. And that's a relocate. Now, she didn't have to go back and get another degree, you know, and then there are examples. Reinvent is like truly become a different kind of a person. Oh, I think I want to I, I think I want to go from being in the actuarial department of my insurance company, which I doubt anybody in this call is, uh, you know, to to getting into the diversity, equity and inclusion thing like, OK, you probably need to get a master's degree. You know, that's that's a whole new you, but a whole new you in the same place where, well, gosh, you know, that Tyler guy. You know, he's pretty trustworthy. He tells the truth. He really gets the culture. And I don't know about the DEI thing he's trying to do, but, you know, if anybody could do it well, he probably could. Let's give him a shot, you know, after he plurals himself for a year. And so those four strategies, reframe and realist, number one, remodel, number two, relocate, number three, reinvent, number four, are just a rising tide. They get harder and harder. You know, re reinvent is a pretty heavy lift. You know, reenlist is just make up a new story and stick to it. I mean, um, you know, we just live in a constant change world, yeah. you know, constantly yeah. evolving, you know, the only constant that we have is change, and it's going to just accelerate. And I think that this, these strategies are the framework for remaining relevant for remaining, you know, marketable, but also remaining fulfilled uh, in your life is is recognizing that there's so many different layers to us. And what's yeah. going to bring out passion and purpose in your life may change. And, and there's just so many different things there. But I just love that. And I just want to invite the listener to, to check out your books, Dave, and, and obviously your, your co author, Bill as well, but designing your life, designing your work life, designing your new work life, we'll put links in the show notes this is where the listeners can find those so that they can dive deeper into these concepts. But at least we've got, you know, a little bit of a more awareness of, hey, we may be going in the right direction, maybe going in a different direction, maybe going in the wrong direction. Um, and this gives us a framework to understand how to take a new path forward. Uh, but is there anything else that you would say about that before we transition to the wrap? Just on the resources, real quick, the, uh, by the way, it really is just two books. Designing Your New Work Life is the second edition of the second book. It's got four new chapters on disruption design, life after the pandemic and that kind of, so skip the Designing Your Work Life. It's now been superseded by Designing Your New Work Life. Um, so, uh, so just do that. Um, if you're a live kind of person, you want the interactive thing like this podcast, um, there is a 22 module designing your life online video training course. It's really well done. Uh, found at a place called Creative Live. So go to creativelive.com, type in designing your life, and bada bing, bada boom, there you go. There's the Dave and Bill show for you if you, if you like the video version. And, you know, um, our, our home website is just the book with the dot in it, the first book. So it's designing your dot life is, is you know, ground central. And there's all kinds of stuff you can find there. So come on down and um, we'll see if we can't give you something you can use.
Awesome. Dave, I'm going to transition to the rapid fire section of the podcast. It's called the rare air questionnaire. It's all about making uncommon you know, decisions and making uncommon choices to uh, continue to forge that path forward and design our life. So I'd love to ask you a few things. Uh, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Um, gosh, probably, um, you know, frankly, a lot of stuff in the spirituality space for me, I would say that um, probably the single most impactful book I read recently is a book called After uh, by Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's a founder of the um, uh, Institute for Near-Death Studies at the Medical School of University of Virginia, talking about his 50 years of study of tens of thousands of near-death experiences of people who nearly died, went to an alternate universe and came back and told the story. Um, so having just walked through my wife's death, you know, I'm finding, you know, the current science on the afterlife pretty interesting. Complimenting that probably would, second to that would be a thing called Mind Sight by Dr. Yeah, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's I share a book author, a book agent with, and Dan's become a friend. I just was on the phone with him this week. So Dan Siegel's work on Mind Sight, I think is absolutely fabulous. Um, which is around the definition of consciousness. The separate self is a profoundly toxic lie. Dr. Dan will remind us um, that your consciousness is located in your brain, your body, and the relational space between us. We are truly members of one another. So if we lived like that, what does that mean? So those, those two things have had a big impact on me recently. Um, I'll stop there. No, that's so good. Um, I've, I've been a big fan of Dr. Dan Siegel's work and Mindsight as well, and that's very illuminating. We'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find both of those books as well as Dave, uh, your and Bill books, uh, your and yours and Bill's books. How about I spit it out there? Uh, Dave, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? A gratefulness and presence. The um, I'm really trying to be present. Um, and I, I'm really working on practicing this not cram more in, but get more out of it. Um, and so just being able to be present to what's in front of me and to be grateful for what's happening, you know, as one of my mentors now 86, sadly dying in Colorado would say, so Dave, how's that cup of coffee? I mean, I'm sitting there complaining about all kinds of seven countries. All I want to know is how's the coffee? Is it good? Is the coffee good? Dave? You know, so it's about gratefulness, about presence. Yeah, I love that question. It's like we got to slow down a little bit and actually enjoy uh, what's right in front of us uh, here and now. Yeah, and I'm trying to learn how to slow down really fast. Um, I called a, a one of my another one of my mentors, Sharon Parks, brilliant woman. Um, long story, um, and you know, I'm not just trying to make decisions. I'm trying to make discernments. And I, I, at, a, at one point in my life, when stuff's coming in fast, you know, I mean, the opportunities are just flying in. Like, man, what do you, what do you say yes to? You know, and I called Sharon. I said, Sharon, how, how do you do this? How do you how do you, you know, thoughtfully, deeply, spiritually, discerningly respond to a machine gun brush that's nonstop? And she said, oh, Dave, relentless discernment. I go, what's that? I mean, she says, you know, learn, you have to learn how to, I mean, very quickly, just, you know, Tyler calls, like you said, very quick. Okay, is this, is this mine? Is this not mine? Got it. And just bam, bam, bam. So learning how to sort of, you know, there's a field called, you know, um, brief depth therapy, which is not a, uh, an oxymoron. And so how, how to get fully aware of, fully access, you know, what the right decision to make about something is fast. So I'm, learn, I'm trying to learn how to go slow, fast. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, I'm 68. You know, I've been working at this a long time. Um, and, you know, I will, I will tell you, having just lived through my wife's death, which was highly painful, but unequivocally the most generative and growing year of my life. It's the first year without her. Um, that, you know, you know, getting your shit together, knowing who you are, understanding your belief systems and having the practices in place that will support you becoming the generative, authentic version of yourself that you want to be comes in really handy when the chips are down. Yeah, no question. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Oh, I listen. And I'm actually interested. I really do want to know you, and I really do want to hear what you're saying from your point of view. Um, that seems kind of obvious to me. It always did. But I hear so much feedback like, oh, my God, you're actually listening. Mm -hmm. um, a kid walked up to me at the um, um, years ago at Cal. I'm teaching the Cal class. And he walks to me and goes, why are you doing this? I kind of, what? what, what? He goes, well, I don't get this. Well, I mean, you, you, you drive all the way over from the peninsula. You know, you've got this business going. You know, you're not, they're not paying you anything. There's only 30 kids in the room at the time. What the hell are you doing this for? I don't get it. What's in it for you? 
I kind of, well, I'm trying to be helpful. I kind of go, that's bullshit. You know, um, and you know, I go, go sit down. <laughs> you know, 10 weeks later, it comes back and kind of goes, so you're not kidding. I go, well, about what? He goes, you actually care about us. I go, yeah, I do. He goes, wow. What a concept. Yeah. And I said, you're, you're not used to that. He goes, no. It's, it's hard for me. I go, yeah, I know. So yeah, the best thing I can do is actually pay attention. I'll tell you what, man, that's why we call it the rare air questionnaire. And it's uncommon. It's uncommon to ask and listen and truly care. Um, and, you know, taking a bit of time to place a little bit of intention on someone else. Um, so Dave, you're amazing, man. I want to acknowledge you uh, for your, you know, your openness, uh, being willing to share so much uh, personal triumph and, and also also pain uh, that you've experienced in your life and, and helping people really connect to that and connect to their own inner pain or triumph and uh, inner questions that they may have to be able to design their life. And uh, man, you you are doing such an amazing service to this, uh, to humanity. So I just really appreciate you. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Gosh, you know, I mean, um, I was just going to say, that's very kind of you to say, and and all I'm really trying to do is just show up. I mean, the, I mean, the old, there's a Casey Stengel or, or Yogi Berry, you know, 90, life's 90% showing up. Um, that actually is pretty true, you know, so just keep showing up folks, man, you showed up fully today. Uh, Dave, Dave Evans, everybody, Dave, thanks again for being on the podcast. I know we already mentioned, uh, some of the places where the listeners can find you in your work, but is there anywhere else? I know we've got LinkedIn, uh, where else can the yeah. listeners find you? Well, I think that's it. The, um, I think, you know, you can find all the places to be found through the home site. So designing your dot life is sort of ground zero and there, it'll send you out to a lot of other places as well. Awesome. We'll put links in the show notes for the listeners uh, to just go ahead and access that very quickly. But Dave, until next time, my friend, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you. Take care, Elevate community. Elevate Nation, Dave Evans bringing the heat. And I feel like we could have gotten so much more out of him if we would have had so much more time. And I can tell you that we squeezed all that we could into this episode, uh, really of, you know, thinking about purpose, thinking about fulfillment, thinking about maximizing, but also um, recognizing that being fully alive may not be the same as maximizing and optimizing. Um, so I think that there's a lot for us to digest here. There's a lot for us to consider. And um, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about this opportunity to bring this to you. So I want to encourage you to number one, re-listen to the show. Uh, there's a lot there. There's a lot to digest, not only from connecting and understanding his story and his journey, but the wisdom that he's bringing to us in terms of you know, design thinking, design mindset, um, utilizing that designer mindset uh, in our life and in our business um, and building our way forward rather than having that engineer mindset or even that business thinking mindset. Um, so I want to encourage you to relisten. I also want to encourage you to identify what are your top one, two or three distinctions from this episode. Discuss those with a friend uh, because we learn more when we have discourse. We also learn twice as much, by the way, when we relisten. So I'll just mention that. But I also want to encourage you to, you know, jot down what are your what are your action steps? What is it that you want to uh, design in your life? What is it that you want to connect to deeper in terms of your own consciousness, your own purpose, your own passion and all these things that may be a little bit of a moving target or maybe multidimensional. But what did you learn about yourself today by listening to this episode? I want to encourage you, most importantly, take massive action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.